I'll tell you a story. I know you expected that. So when our boys were three and five, when they were little guys, we visited my aunt and uncle who were living in Denver at the time. I started to notice as I was preparing that most of my visiting stories are about visiting my aunt and uncle because they moved all over the world and we got to stay with them all over the place. So that was kind of neat as I look back on it. Anyway, one night we stayed in this high-rise hotel in downtown Denver. If you've raised boys, you know that when they're growing up, they tend to fixate on things and they become all about those things for however long they're on them until they move on to the next thing. For years, I was fixated on dinosaurs and then I gave that up to be fixated on Batman. That has not stopped. Anyway, it was on that trip that the elevator was the thing that had the boys' attention. And when we opened this building, our resident three- to five-year-olds had the same obsession for a while. They loved that elevator. Anyway, our boys loved the elevator in the hotel. And I don't remember how tall the hotel was, but it was tall. And I believe we're on the 18th floor, if memory serves. So we got to the hotel check in in the lobby, ride up on the elevator, check into the room. Then we got to ride down on the elevator when we went out to dinner. And then we got to ride up on the elevator again when we got back. And for the boys, like, I think that was the highlight of the trip, at least up until that time. And, and let me also add that our oldest son, Dylan, was, and by the way, he still is, the friendliest person in the world, in the world. People describe him as a golden retriever. And I think he's nicer than a golden retriever. So Dylan, if you're watching, there you go. Anyway, we used to joke that Dylan would get on an elevator, any elevator, anywhere, and make a friend. He'd meet a stranger on the ground floor, and by the time we arrived where we would be getting off the elevator, they were best friends. So here we were in the hotel, an elevator full of new friends. Pretty much Dylan's favorite thing shows up when we're getting ready to head down for the day's activities. So we're traveling with a bunch of family members, my brothers and stuff, and we met in front of the elevator to discuss the day's plan. And while the adults were talking, that elevator door opened up. Now, the car was mostly full, but that open door full of people was way too much for our friendly five-year-old to resist. So we turned away for a second. And if you're a parent of a young child, you know how this goes. For a second, Dylan ran in the elevator Doors began to close, and we heard him cry out, Mom, Dad! <laughs> With that, he disappeared. And the elevator began its descent. You know, you watch the numbers, and it's just going down. At first, we, we didn't really understand what happened. Do you ever do that? You're like, oh, what did I just see? And seconds later, Beth goes, where did Dylan go? And so I said, stay here. And I ran to the stairs, and I... Ran down the stairs, I was praying like crazy, and I got to the bottom, and I arrived at the elevator door, and there was Dylan, safe and sound, with some new friends, <laughs> some people that just stood with him until his parents got there. Now, by the way, that was the end of Dylan's elevator period. Like, that was enough to get him off elevators. We were quite relieved after that. But anyway, thinking about elevator stories got me thinking about this. Do you know the origin story of the elevator? It's interesting. I always like origin stories, as you know. Primitive elevators actually have been in use since the 3rd century BC. That's interesting, right? How were they operated? By human power, by animal power, by water wheel power? 
And that was pretty much the extent of the technology for about 1,500 years. I mean, it really never changed. Then in about uh, seven, actually, no, I think it's longer. I think it's 1,900 years. So about 1743, a counterweighted, man-powered personal elevator was built for King Louis XV, which connected his apartment in Versailles with that of his mistress, Madame de Chateau, whose quarters were on the floor above his own. What did he say? It's good to be the king? Something like that? No, no, no. Anyway, from about the middle of the 19th century, elevators were steam-powered, and they were used for transporting materials, mostly in factories and mines and warehouses. And in 1823, two architects built what they called an ascending room, which was really a crude elevator that they used to pay or to lift paying tourists to a platform that gave a panoramic view of London. Then in 1846, Sir William Armstrong introduced hydraulics to the elevator, but it would be the next development that would put elevators on the map, if you will. In 1853, in New York City, America hosted its very first World Fair. So what happened, the organizers, organizers built this exhibition hall, they called it the Crystal Palace, and it was in this hall at the World Fair that inventors would showcase the latest and greatest inventions. They didn't have the internet, they didn't have the marketing we have, so you drew people together, and this was like a big thing. This is where a man by the name of Elijah Otis stole the show by pulling off a stunt like no one had ever seen before. So Otis was not the inventor of the elevator, but he was the inventor of the elevator safety brake. It's a really important thing to have when, when you have an elevator, right? But he had a hard time selling this idea because people didn't really trust a brake on an elevator. They weren't going to ride this elevator. It's too dangerous. So here's what he did. He stood on a platform, and you're looking at the picture. You can see he's kind of standing up on that platform, high above the, the floor at the Crystal Palace, and he had an axe man positioned above the elevator shaft, and then he yelled out loud enough for everyone to hear, cut the rope. And the crowd, you could tell, just kind of drew its collected breath, and the elevator fell just a few feet. And then Otis announced, all is safe, ladies and gentlemen. All is safe. The safety brake worked. His sales pitch worked. And he cried out, cut the rope. When he said that, there were only a few buildings in New York City that were taller than five floors. Why is that? Because nobody wants to walk up the stairs any taller than that. You ever walk up a five-story walk up in New York? It, it's enough. It's enough. Anyway, in 1854, Otis installed his first elevator in a building on Broadway, and the rest is history. By 1908, there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as skyscrapers. So that was the thing that was holding it back, was the fact that you didn't have an elevator to go higher. You couldn't build higher. And by 2008, this is an amazing number, the equivalent of the world's population, nearly 8 billion people, ride an Otis elevator every three days. From, from that to 8 billion people in that few years. Elijah Otis literally cut the rope and changed the world. And there comes a moment when you need to cut the rope. Playing it safe actually can be risky. In fact, the greatest risk is often not taking a risk because it maintains a bad status quo and it leads to regret. 
According to psychological studies, at the end of our lives, 84% of our regrets will be things that we would have, could have, and should have done, but we didn't. See, it's not the mistakes that we made that are painful, even though they are painful. It's the opportunities we missed that are the ones that people lament. And, and sure, we'll experience a few fails and a few falls when we cut the rope. But cutting the rope is the way we cut the barriers. It's the way we cut the barriers to God's abundance in our lives. Let's pray together. God, thank you again for this morning. Thank you so far for the worship that we've had, for celebrating the communion, for being together as your people. God, as we continue on this morning, we take a look at the scripture. We ask that you would use your words to impact us, to change us, change our hearts, change our minds, and change our lives. God, we praise you, we thank you, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome everybody here on site. Welcome everybody here online to the next installment of our series, Win the Day. We've been talking about how if we want to fulfill God's design for us, we need to build our lives on God's word, on the Bible. Now, remember, we kicked off this series, and if you missed any of the messages, you can go back to hammockstreetchurch.com, listen to any of the messages online. But we kicked off the series saying that if we wanted to win the day, we needed to learn to flip the script. If we can see our challenges as opportunities that are presented to us, well, then we'll be able to experience God's abundance so we can bring him glory in everything we do. Then we talked about how we can win the day when we learn to kiss the wave. By taking a step in faith, we can go from victim to victor. Then we saw how we can win the day when we learn to eat the frog when we start to tackle our greatest challenges first, God will begin to do great things in our lives. And then last week, we talked about how we can live the abundant lives that God has given us and called us to by learning to fly the kite. We said, how you do anything is how you'll do everything. If you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. Well, today, we're going to see how if we want to maximize God's call upon our lives, we need to learn to use grand gestures in order to embark upon new directions, and then we need to learn to cut the rope. All right. In his book called Deep Work, a Georgetown professor named Cal Newport talked about a concept called the grand gesture. Now, there are lots of ways to make grand gestures, and you probably know some of them already. It could be a romantic gesture, like getting down on one knee and proposing marriage. How many husbands got down on one knee and proposed when you proposed? I did. A couple of you, a few of you, all right, a lot of non-traditionalists here, good for you. It could be a physical gesture, like taking a before picture and posting it on social media before you start a diet or exercise routine. That is a bold and grand gesture these days because you're going to get comments. It can be a real creative gesture. We've talked about this before. Remember Hernan Cortez who, who traveled from, from Europe here to North America and Mexico and when he landed at Veracruz, he eliminated the possibility of any return to Europe by burning his ships, pushing them off the coast on fire so there were no more ships. Remember that? That's a grand gesture. Simply put, a grand gesture is a defining decision. It's a calculated risk that you take in your life. It's a selfless sacrifice that doubles as a defining moment in your life. I, I think probably most people, when they reach adulthood, have certain grand gestures that they've taken and certain defining moments in their lives that they remember. Just historically, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, 
Catholic German priest, posted 95 theses on the doors of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and kicked off with that the Protestant Reformation. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up a seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, which motivated the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. On May 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy said we would land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade, and that marked the beginning of, of the man's space race. Those are grand gestures. Those are all grand gestures. And when it comes to goal-setting, problem-solving, habit-breaking, grand gestures are simultaneously small steps, but also giant leaps. And even... Sometimes they, they, they'll mark a point of no return. Like once you make your grand gesture, that's it. Life is different after that. Sometimes they aren't newsworthy, but they're still important when it comes to our own lives. Now, the Bible's full of grand gestures. There's lots of grand gestures in the Bible. I'm certainly not going to list all of them, but think of some of them. Remember that guy Noah? He built a really big boat. Remember that? Actually, he originated the phrase, go big or go home. Did you know that? I read on the internet. It must be true. But he built this big boat. There was no rain. There was no water. He was counting on God's promise to save his family. Remember Abraham? He put his son Isaac, his beloved son, on the altar. That was a grand gesture. He was leaning on God's promise to make a great nation out of his descendants. Remember when the Israelites circled Jericho for seven days? Remember that? And then they blew the horns and the walls fell down. Because circling for seven days this is a big gesture. They look pretty silly, but they knew God would keep his promise and deliver their enemies into their hands. In the New Testament, James and John dropped their nets in order to follow Jesus. Peter got out of the boat and walked on water, showing his faith in the Lord. I could keep going, but, but I think you get it. Suffice it to say, those are grand gesture events. Those events represent the days in which decades happen. They're inciting incidents that turn into defining moments. Each one of them, in their own unique way, was a way of cutting the rope. For some, it was a huge moment that changed everything. For others, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of changing. One way or the other, for each of them, they came to, there came a moment when they just needed to cut the rope. If you have a Bible, you turn to chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, Matthew, Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. You follow along on the screen, too. I always put those up there for you. And we're going to see how Jesus made a grand gesture in order to help the disciples have the faith they would need to cut the rope and change the world. All right, so first verse we're going to look at, Mark 4.35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go across to the other side. All right, what's going on? Well, Jesus had spent the day teaching this huge crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And at sundown, he and the disciples set out to cross the lake. Now, I called it a lake. Sea of Galilee is a bit of a misnomer. It's not really a sea. It's really just a big lake. It's actually known as the Lake of Gennesaret. So Sea of Galilee is a big lake. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. So stop here. Why is it significant that they set out to make the crossing at night. Well, it's because being on the lake at night is scarier and more dangerous than being out there in broad daylight. Plus, it requires much more effort to navigate the lake at night. 
So as a result, crossing it is a bigger deal. It's a grander gesture. So we keep going, verse 36, and leaving the crowd. Stop here for a second. Why is it important that he left the crowd? Well, a grand gesture often begins with a change of scenery. Sometimes to effect a change, we need to leave the crowd behind. How do we do that? By disconnecting from our current distractions. As we've discussed a lot these days, we're all suffering a bit from information overload, right? We are bombarded with news. We're bombarded with fake news. Every minute of every hour of every day. We have online advertisers assaulting us with clickbait, vying for our attention. By the way, don't you see that? You say something in your house, or you search something, and the next thing you know, you're just getting ad after ad after ad about that thing that you searched. We have these social media algorithms that cause that. They target us based on our likes, the things we like, our follows, the people we follow, our search history. It's not a stretch to sometimes feel like our consumption of social media is a lot like eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We, we kind of know this is going to end up killing us, but we do it anyway. Similar, isn't it? If we're being truthful with ourselves, we weren't designed with the capacity to know everything about everything. Our brains simply can't handle it. We can't know everything about everything all the time. I think we'd do well to disengage a bit from it. Now, we shouldn't bury our heads in the sands. Absolutely not. But as followers of Jesus, we certainly do need to learn to interact with our community. We need to learn to interact with this news, but we need to do so in a different way, in sort of a more disconnected way. Swiss theologian Karl Barth said this, take your Bible and take your newspapers and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. That's the way you understand the news, and we ignore this advice at our own peril. See, if we filter the Bible through the news, then our theology, our belief in God, begins to conform to our reality that we see in the world, and we start to slide toward a form of idolatry. We start to think that the things that are going on in the world are much more important than our God, which is not true. So how do we do this? How do we leave the crowd behind? Well, we can start by reading the Bible more than we read our online news sources. Can anybody say they do that? That's a tough one. Did you know that the average person spends 142 minutes on social media? That's roughly 15% of our waking hours. 15% just scrolling through on social media. Some of you you know do more, some do less. But the question is, is this really how you want to spend that much of your life? See, now would be a good time for us to disconnect from that loud voice that our culture has and connect ourselves with the still, small voice of God because that voice needs to become the loudest voice in our lives. All right, moving on. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. All right, what's happening here? Well, a little bit more geography. So the Sea of Galilee sits at about 700 feet below sea level and is surrounded by hills and mountains. The area, by the way, it's currently known as the Golan Heights. If you're listening to the news, you've heard the words was known as the Decapolis in Jesus' day. And it borders the Sea of Galilee to the northeast and to the east. And it sits about 2,500 feet above sea level. So you see what's happening. We've got this way below sea level and way above sea level situation. And this configuration makes the Sea of Galilee susceptible to all sorts of crazy, violent, sudden storms and weather patterns. 
So, after they left the crowd for a change of scenery and perspective, storms began. Now, if you don't know the story, you might expect that Jesus would jump right in and reward, reward this bold move away from the crowds. Good work, guys. You're, you're cutting a rope. You're doing the great thing. But that's not what happened. Let's go on in Mark 4. Jesus fell asleep. Jesus is in the stern. So he's in the front of the boat or in the back of the boat, and he fell asleep. By the way, just need you to know, this is biblical proof that Jesus napped, that God has ordained nap-taking. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. So when y'all take your naps on Sunday, you're being very spiritual. So good for you. All right. So we continue. Jesus in the stern, sleep on the cushion, and they woke him. And they said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? They were kind of whiny, weren't they? Jesus is asleep, and the disciples assumed that he must not care about them anymore. It's always about them. You believe that? After all that they'd seen Jesus do, how could they have doubted him? In two seconds, they went from Jesus is asleep to Jesus doesn't care about us anymore. We would never do that, would we? No. Yes, of course, we do that all the time. As soon as we have a little bit of tension, a little bit of friction, it's, oh, no, God's abandoned me. What happened to me? We live in a time when jumping to conclusions and casting blame on others is our great national pastime, right? Everyone else is doing it. We ought to do it too, right? Wrong. No. As God's people, we're called to a higher purpose. We need to do better. We need to cut the rope that's keeping us tied to the ways of the world. And we can do that, but we have to first remember whom we serve, whom we follow. When we remember the one to whom we owe our very lives, the one in whom we can trust, the one through whom we can have the ability to move mountains, the one who has the power to use our circumstances to bring him glory and renew our world, that's the one we need to trust. But the disciples didn't understand all of that yet. And then here's what happened. Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, there is a tendency when we read this to apply something called hindsight bias. But if you use your hindsight bias, you're going to miss how important this event was. Hindsight bias is also known as the I knew it all along phenomenon. It's a common tendency that we have that we perceive past events as having been much more predictable than they actually were. We're seeing it with, with COVID. We see it with all sorts of things and war crimes and all this. When you look back, you go, well, if I was there, I'd have done it differently because I'd have seen it coming. No, you wouldn't have. None of us saw any of this coming, and that's just the way it is. But that's what we do. It's called hindsight bias. Now, because we've heard this story before, most of us, we run the risk of missing the point. So let's not do that. This was a watershed moment. This was a grand gesture that allowed the disciples to cut the rope. Instead of turning to some master mariner skill that the typical sailor would have resorted to in this situation. You're out on the sea and the storm comes up. A guy who's been on the sea a long time is going to know a little bit more to do. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus stood up and he scolded. That's what rebuking means. He scolded the things that were frightening the disciples and threatening their very lives and he made those things stop. How was he able to do that with only his words? Because he's God. And as God, Jesus had the power and the authority to do just what he did. And when you become a follower of Jesus, when you 
Understanding that in spite of your sinfulness, God loves you anyway. And out of his love for you, he's made a way for you to be connected forever to him by paying for all of your sins on the cross and then coming back from the dead. When you're understanding that, you turn from your natural self and make Jesus your Lord and Savior and leader. Once you do that, you can tap into that very same power to do grand things in God's name, on God's behalf, according to God's will as well. Jesus left an adoring crowd to make a grand gesture, the one of the perilous crossing of the nighttime sea. And then he cut the rope, going big with the sign of commanding the wind and the waves with his voice and showing the disciples the next level of his authority. All right, let's bring this home. Now, if you've been paying any attention to what's going on in the world this past week, you will know that the, that the world has once again shown us that we are living in tumultuous times. We saw gas lines, we saw cyber attacks, we saw fighting in the Middle East, we saw violence in our cities, we heard unvarnished hate spewing forth from the halls of Congress. Up until now, the standard response the world has had to these troubling events has been to meet fire with fire, has been to meet fear with fear. Oh, you're going to scare me? Well, we're going to scare you. Oh, you're going to call me names? Well, we're going to call you names. We've been meeting hate with hate. You come after me, I'll come after you. You attack me, I'll attack you back. That's where our human nature naturally leads us. But what if? And this is a big what if. What if we all responded differently? What if instead of doing all the things that the people in the world do around us and we just try to do them better, what if we took bold action? What if we made a grand gesture? What if we have the faith in God we need to cut the rope? What if we as Jesus followers could exercise our spiritual authority in the Messiah, in Christ, in a proper spirit of humility, of course, but what if we could rebuke the wind and waves of our day? What if we chose, instead of doing what we've always done, what if we chose to stand in the gap as peacemakers? What if we were known as peacemakers? What if we were known as grace givers? What if we were known as tone setters? What if we chose as the people of God to tap into God's divine power and demolish these strongholds of the evil one? We can turn the tide back. What if we rebuked pervasive hate with love? What if we rebuked pride with humility? What if we rebuked cursing with blessing? What if we rebuked lies with the truth? What if we rebuked injustice with righteousness? What if we rebuked racism with repentance and reconciliation? What if we rebuked the cancel culture with grace? You see, God's already given us the authority to move mountains. And if we move in God's will, there is nothing that will stop us. So I want to finish up by looking at two kinds of grand gestures that we can make, and then two ways we can cut the rope. So the first kind of grand gesture is, is what I call the field of dreams gesture. If we build it, they will come. For you young guys and gals, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a good movie. Check it out. A lot of good points and lessons there. But it's Noah building the ark on God's promise of a flood, even though the skies were clear. It's Abraham moving from Haran to Shechem, even though he didn't know where he was going. It's the little boy who gave up his brown bag lunch five loaves and two fish, to Jesus, even though he didn't expect a miracle. What if we took action as if God's already promised the result? Because God has already promised the result. See, if we do that, God will honor our faith. 
That's the first kind of grand gesture. The other kind of grand gesture is the enough is enough gesture. I like to call it the Popeye moment. That's all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. That's the point of no return. That's when we get to that place where we go, that's it. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. That's David's decision to fight Goliath. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's decision to refuse to bow down to that 90-foot statue of the godless king named Nebuchadnezzar. That's Jesus cursing the barren fig tree. Those are grand gestures, and those are grand gestures that will get us rolling as we take back our area all around Boca Raton and environs for Jesus. And then after we've executed these grand gestures, we'll need to cut the rope. And we can do that by doing two things. Number one, kneeling down. Number two, standing up. Start with kneeling down. We need to start cutting the rope by getting on our knees, by praying for a revival in our nation, by praying for a revival in our area. God's words to King Solomon about the future of his chosen people are illustrative. You might have heard this before. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, revival always starts with repentance. It's repenting of our personal sin. It's lamenting of our corporate sin. And all of that starts with God's people. Here's a story. There's a gentleman by the name of Rodney Smith. They called him Gypsy. He was born into poverty in the outskirts of London in 1860. But despite his humble origins, he was invited by two sitting U.S. presidents to the White House. Gypsy, back then, crisscrossed the Atlantic 45 times. And it wasn't like it is now where you get on a plane and five hours later you're there. This is a perilous journey. He was preaching the gospel, and he preached the gospel to millions of people. And every time he preached the gospel, hundreds of people surrendered their lives to Jesus' lordship. Gypsy, as they called him, was powerfully used by God. But it wasn't his preaching that brought revival. Preaching moves the heart of men, but praying moves the heart of God. See, revival comes from God. Once a delegation of revivalists sought an audience with Gypsy... They wanted to know how they could make a difference with their lives the way he had with his. And here's what he said. Go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. Guys, if you're married, ask your wife first. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. It starts with you. Prayer, though, is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for us. All right, number two, stand up. You got to stand up. On January 30th, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at the First Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And during his talk, his speech, he was told that his house had been bombed. So he went home and checked out the house. And that night when he was sitting at his kitchen table in his bombed out house, he heard a voice that said, Martin, do not be afraid. Inspired by that experience, Dr. King took a stand. And 11 years later, he said this. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be. And one day, some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you're afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job. Or you're afraid that you will be criticized or that you will lose your popularity or 
You're afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house, so you refuse to take the stand. He concluded, well, you may go on and live until you're 90, but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. The secession of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of the earlier death of the spirit. Five months later, Dr. King was assassinated. Today, we're facing another watershed moment in history. It's time for God's people to quit living as if the purpose of life was to arrive safely at death. That's not what we're doing. At the end of the day, God isn't going to say to us, well thought, well planned, well intentioned, right? He's not going to say that. The only thing he's going to say, the only commendation that we're going to receive from God is well done, good and faithful servant. So let's make the grand gesture. Let's kneel down. Let's stand up. And then let's do it over and over and over again as we learn to cut the rope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for guiding us to the place where we can be closer to you, where we can enjoy you, where we can really enjoy the lives that you've given us. We can live abundantly by living according to your will. God, as we continue on from here today, we would ask that you would change us, move us, help us to be those people who will boldly proclaim who you are, who stand out against the culture of violence and anger and bitterness and jealousy. God, help us to be different. Help us to be those people to whom, those, to whom others turn for grace and, and love and forgiveness. Because, God, we know that those things are powerful, and through them, you will change the world. We thank you, God. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.